Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Thursday, December the 17th. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by Jan Fran. Hey, Jan. Hey, Tom. How you doing? Yeah, good. An interesting interview today. We're going to speak to a former white supremacist who explains how the pandemic has created a fertile breeding ground for far-right ideologies. When people are trying to make sense of the world and they're angry and they're feeling a bit dispossessed, these ideologies are, are very, very seductive. Yeah, in just a sec, we're going to find out what drives people to groups like the Proud Boys. What's a word that's the opposite of shame? Pride. Proud Boys. I'm proud of my race. Right pride worldwide. They're often an overcompensation for the feeling of deficit. Before we get to that interview, let's get to the big news of the day. Three cases of COVID-19 have been discovered in Sydney Oh, I did not want to be bringing you this news today, but it does end two weeks of no locally acquired cases across the state. Yeah, so the first one we heard about was the 45-year-old van driver who's been driving international flight crews to and from the airport. He started to feel sick on Saturday, but didn't get tested till Tuesday. Obviously, there's genomic sequencing being done on the case, and uh, we'll know within 24 to 48 hours. Um, as to uh, confirmation that it is from an international source. That was New South Wales Health Minister Brad Hazard there. Yeah, the two other cases which came through later yesterday are a woman in her 60s and a man in his 70s, and they live on Sydney's northern beaches. Concerningly, um, I guess they're still mystery cases because health officials don't know how they were infected. Yeah, look, that's the big concern here, isn't it? Um, I'd like to think that New South Wales has good contact tracing. They've demonstrated that over the past few months, so fingers crossed that's applied in this case as well. But there are now around 10 virus hotspots that the three of those people visited while infectious. So if you do want to check them out, they're on the New South Wales Health website. Yeah, we heard a lot earlier in the pandemic about young people going on pub crawls and stuff like that <laughs> while they're infected. This baby boomer couple on the northern beaches of Sydney... Like they got out and about, didn't they? They were having a good time. <laughs> Here we go. Um, one cafe, Two cafes on a Sunday. Went to the bowling club um, in the afternoon. On Monday, they were back at it again at another cafe, a Thai massage and spa... And then off to a Thai restaurant. So they're out living the dream. Um, If you're from that area, you want to take a look at those locations. In terms of the guy driving the flight crews around, that's an interesting one as well, because obviously that's a high risk scenario, you know, coming in close contact with people traveling from overseas. So the health minister actually says that he wants flight crew quarantine measures tightened so that they at least a little bit more closely resemble the program that we've got for return travellers. The difference would be, of course, that they would be in a quarantine environment, but not necessarily for the full 14 days because they obviously have usually turnarounds between 24 and 72 hours. It's going to be interesting to see what this means for borders. I know um, Queensland are watching this closely. The acting premier was saying yesterday that their chief health officer has been in touch with New South Wales as Chief Health Officer. So the next few days will be critical. Also interesting is what it might mean for the New Zealand travel bubble, Mm. which apparently was contingent on 28 days with no community transmission. How's that going to work? Oh, no, please. Nobody close the borders this close to Christmas either. That's going to (laughs) put so many people off. And a major development in the story of Malka Leifer, that's the former Australian school principal accused of fleeing to Israel more than a decade ago to avoid child sexual abuse charges. Yeah, yesterday Leifer lost a Supreme Court appeal arguing that she was too mentally ill to return here and face allegations that she abused female students. And now Israel's Justice Minister has signed an extradition order which will see her sent back to Melbourne. 
Yeah, on Twitter, that minister, Avi Nissenkorn, uh, wrote that after many years, after a shameful attempt to present herself as mentally ill, and in light of the Supreme Court ruling, it is our moral duty to allow life uh, to stand trials. So I feel like this, this story's got to a similar point many times, but finally she might be coming back to Australia to face justice. Yeah, I think this is certainly good news for the victims. And Australia is taking China to the World Trade Organisation over massive tariffs that threaten to cripple our barley industry. Yeah, China slapped the 80% anti-dumping tariff on barley back in May. Dumping is selling a product for less than it's actually worth in order to undercut the local industry. And that's something Aussie farmers have denied doing here. Yeah, it's expected to cost barley producers $2.5 billion in lost profits. And the Trade Minister, Simon Birmingham, says... Australia's been left with no other choice. WTO dispute resolution processes are not perfect. Uh, They take longer than would be ideal, but ultimately it is the right avenue for Australia to take at this point in time. Yeah, he's also said he's pretty confident that Australia has a strong case here, but it is an interesting move because... What this does, if anything, is is make this dispute between Australia and China international. It was an issue between two countries, and now the 160-plus members of the World Trade Organisation are going to be, you know, mulling over it. So it puts it in the international spotlight, I think. And do you think that'll make China less angry or more angry? I could not tell you. <laughs> I couldn't tell you at this point. But, look, it's, you know, it does have some serious implications for the other industries here in Australia that China has slapped tariffs on. Um, as well as our relationship, you know, 30% of our exports go to China. Yeah, so <laughs> That's huge. Yeah, it's an interesting game. Um, you potentially piss off China more, but you potentially galvanise more international support for this kind of stoush that we're having. So it'd be interesting to see how it plays out. And <laughs> Tom Cruise has ripped into crew members who apparently weren't social distancing while filming the new Mission Impossible movie in the UK. He did. In this um, leaked audio... He threatens to fire anyone who does not follow the rules. We are creating thousands of jobs, you I don't ever want to see it again. Ever. And if you don't do it, you're fired. And I see you do it again, you're gone. And anyone on this crew does it. That's it. And you too. And you too. And you. Don't you ever do it again. Wow, strong to very strong. He went on to say that he doesn't want their apologies. You can tell it to the people that are losing their f***ing homes because our industry is shut down. It's not going to put food on their table or pay for their college education. That's what I sleep with every night. The future of the industry. All right. Obviously, he was very angry about what happened. I can't really blame him, to be honest. The the UK is not doing well at all. There was 25,000 cases in just 24 hours. He doesn't want an outbreak on his set. He's trying to protect the film, the crew, the industry. Maybe he's gone about it in a way that's a little bit over the top. Maybe it really is Mission Impossible. <laughs> you know, you know what, what Tom Cruise did, though? Like, this is how seriously he takes it because they've been filming Mission Impossible around Europe as well. Is it and, number seven? Yeah, I, th- I don't know. Uh, look, I stopped at Mission Impossible 1, to be Me honest, too. so I'm, I'm not sure what they're up to. But he spent $900,000 of his own money to charter a cruise ship where crew members... Uh, on the film Could Isolate. This was off the coast of Norway and and while they were filming Mission Impossible in Europe. So he does take this stuff very seriously. And they've just moved to the UK. They've been there for two weeks. He doesn't want an outbreak. It looks really fun, though, cruising around parts of Europe on a cruise ship working on a film. But I guess not if you're getting berated like that. 
I guess you just got to follow the rules. Yeah, exactly. Follow the rules. Stay COVID safe, people. All right, in just a moment, a fascinating interview with a former white supremacist. Today on The Briefing, we're going to talk about white supremacy and the far right. Just four years ago, it was only 10 or 15% of ASIO cases that were linked to the far right. Now, that figure's almost tripled. Yeah. The head of ASIO, that is our national security agency, says that neo-Nazis are one of the most challenging security threats in Australia. It's a similar situation in the US, where a State Department report from July warned that racially motivated terrorism, especially white supremacists, is on the rise and spreading geographically. Yeah, so on today's show, we're going to hear from someone who not only knows white supremacist ideology intimately, he actually used to preach it himself. Yeah, Tony McClear is a former white supremacist and far-right recruiter who now preaches the very opposite of what he used to believe. Yeah, Tony, welcome. Tell us, how did you actually become a white supremacist? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question, and to answer that, for my case and the, and the case of so many other young people, you kind of have to go back to childhood or or youth. I was a upper middle class kid. My father was a psychiatrist. I went to private school. So it's, there's not any stereotypical demographic that white supremacists come from. And as anybody growing up, you know, there was stuff happening in my childhood that left me feeling very angry, very confused, very distrusting of authority. And you know, I think those events that happen in, in childhood, they create vulnerabilities. You know, they create a level of, of dissatisfaction, a wound that's looking to be sort of soothed. And there's many unhealthy ways, and there's healthy ways, there's many unhealthy ways at which, at which we find soothing for that, for that wound, so to speak. And I found... Uh, first, the punk scene, you know, it was very angry and it was very vibing where I was. Yeah, I, I walked in on a on my dad with another woman when I was nine. And then I started acting out and my grades went from A's and B's to C's and D's. And and uh, the school got together with my parents and decided to try and beat the grades back into me. The thing that really sticks with me is even to this day, you know, I got marched into the office and got hit on the rear end with a meter stick. I don't think I've ever felt as powerless Mm. as I felt uh, in that office over and over and over again. And so when this soft middle class, you know, kid starts hanging around with skin as my parents couldn't couldn't figure it out. And and they go, well, what's the attraction? You can go and do anything you want. You have you know, you have you live a life of privilege. You have every opportunity to do whatever you want. Why are you hanging out with these guys? And and I've thought about that. And, and I think they had the one thing that I didn't. And that was. That was toughness. People were afraid of them. They were never afraid of me. And when I was with them and people were afraid of us, I felt powerful. Right. And the only reason that that was really attractive is because I'm coming from that place of powerless uh, in that office over and over and over again. So it was something that made me feel safe. And it's the most illogical thing to say. I'm hanging out with skinheads because it makes me feel safe. But at an emotional level, mm. that's what it did. And I got drawn in for the camaraderie, the brotherhood, the you know, in, in absence of, of a healthy understanding of what masculinity about, I was I thought that was the, the right avenue. And these are the reasons that young people, young people join. The ideology is a pill one has to swallow to get those things. And I, I, not, I not only swallowed it, I became the ideology. It wasn't something I believed. It became who I was. It became my identity. Yeah. 
which presents the challenge when you're trying to help someone out of it. You have to, you're not just challenging their beliefs, you're challenging their identity. And, and it's, it's really hard to intellectually get through to someone when you're, you're challenging the identity at the same time, because the ego will fight to the death to preserve itself. I mean, so how dark or messed up did your beliefs and actions get? I mean, in the early days as a skinhead, it would it was a lot of street violence and fighting with punks and anti-racists. And, but later on, I put on a suit and tie and I became more a propagandist. I got quite involved in Holocaust denial and uh, was pretty ar- articulate. I, was, I wasn't the brawn of the organization by any means, but uh, I, I was more the brains. Mm. And intellectually, I was a big fish in a small pond. It took on a role in inter, um, ushering in the the beginning of the internet age. I built the first, one of the first white power websites for resistance records to peddle hate music uh, in the mid '90s. And I got um, you know instead of pe- people fearing me and and wearing the Doc Martens and bomber jackets, I wore a suit and tie. And the more notoriety I got being on television and in the newspaper, and the more I was able to exercise my power through people. Uh, the street violence still went on, but I just wasn't a part of it, although I had a hand in directing it. Why does this ideology still exist and still attract people? Well, because I think there, there's, there's always going to be people who, who internally are feeling less than. I talk a lot about toxic shame. You know, toxic shame is the feeling that we're not good enough, we're less than, we're um, not smart enough, not pretty enough, and we're weak and powerless. And that it sits in our subconscious identity belief system, the beliefs we hold about ourselves. And we're not really consciously aware of it, but it, it, it influences everything we do. And we spend an inordinate amount of time trying to convince the world that it's not true or proving to the world that it is. So the example of proving to the world that it is, is becoming a, like I was a gifted underachiever. I lived up to the lie I believed about myself. Um, at other times, though, I, I spent an inordinate amount of time to... Disprove the lie. Now I ask you, what's a word that's the opposite of shame? Um, pride. Pride, right? So these groups, you know, proud boys, I'm proud of my race, right? Pride worldwide. They're often a polarity, a mirror opposite, an overcompensation for the feeling of deficit. So the question would then be to come around full circle back to the beginning is going, why, why is there continually people growing up with that sense of deficit, that sense of toxic shame. Because as long as there's people with toxic shame, these movements and these environments um, will seduce it. And, and you know, people get like myself, get a hold of the ideology, can be very persuasive and influence young men and women to go down a path they wouldn't normally go down. If you take someone who has a really healthy sense of themselves and is well-adjusted, the ideology is not of interest. Yeah, but why is it, why is it so often around race? Well, it could be other things too. I mean, it, but this seems to be the one that keeps be, coming back. Well, there's always the 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 ego likes to see difference, right? And and so it's always about I'm going to make myself bigger by putting down these other people. And we've lost, I think, a lot in in society today. We've lost our sense of com, of, of compassion, yes, but curiosity, you know. And, and we don't, we're not curious about other people and in, in who they are or not what they believe, but why they believe it. And I think as as society becomes more rigid, rigid and we lose that that curiosity, it's easier for these black and white ideologies that offer simple solutions to very complex problems. Mm. But there's there's often very real grievances 
um, or the perceived real grievances that these ideologies learn uh, they, they're very good at exploiting and, and drawing people in at a very sort of raw emotional level. And, and when people are trying to make sense of the world and they're angry and they're feeling a bit dispossessed, um, these ideologies are, are very, very seductive. Yeah. I mean, you're no longer a white supremacist. You, you left that behind a while ago. You've done a complete 180, actually. How does that happen? What was the moment for you where you decided, right, I need to leave this ideology behind? It was a process rather than a moment. Mm. And that was the when I'm in the delivery room at the age of 23 holding my baby girl in my hand and she opens her eyes for the first time and my face is the first picture that her brain is going to take. And, and in that moment, I connected with another human being for the first time since I couldn't remember when. Um, I was completely disconnected from my emotions and I'd put up this guard of indifference of not caring about anything and and because it what at certain parts of my life wasn't safe to be open and, and to feel things and and for the first time since i couldn't remember when i thought of someone else other than myself because i was a complete narcissist i had my head so far up my ego it, it wasn't funny and you know children are amazing and and they gave me my first lesson in compassion and they're safe to love they're really infectious in the way that they they love us, and and it's hard not to not to love them back. It's hard not to soften when they see this magnificent human being that they see, and the, this magnificent dad that that I don't see when I looked in the mirror, you know. But I saw my my humanity beginning to be reflected back at me through through their eyes, and that's what what happens with compassion. I think compassion shows up over and over and over again in the people that we've helped at Life After Hate. And it's a very powerful experience, but that started the softening and opening of my heart. That started the thawing process that allowed me to walk away from uh, from the movement. Okay, so Tony, what do you make of the, the risk and the dangers posed by the far right now? Um, we obviously witnessed that horrific attack in, in Christchurch, which was motivated by those white supremacist views. Do you think the, the threat of this ideology and the people involved with it is getting more and more dangerous. And what do you put that down to? There's Anders Breivik in, in Norway, and that was 76 people. You've got the Tree of Life Synagogue. You've got Oak Creek uh, Sikh Temple Massacre. You know, you've got um, Mother Emanuel Church mass killing as well. And, and what's happening is because of uh, the internet and social media, you know, everybody's aware of what everyone else is doing and the ideology and pieces of the ideology get spread transnationally. So you, you'll see that Brevik's manifesto, you know, was was read or referenced, um, I think, in the Christchurch killing and I think maybe one of the other ones. And they they all kind of feed off off each other. And with all of the media attention that surrounds these horrific attacks, they sort of one up each other and they in a sad way, they become normalized. When it's live streamed like a video game as it was in Christchurch and it's consumed the media that way, I mean, I think that video is still circulating on the internet no matter how much resources Facebook and YouTube put at yeah. at shutting it down. It's, it's like playing whack-a-mole. Well, I mean, that's the question. Uh, if you're saying that the internet is contributing to a rise in these ideologies, 
I mean, what can be done about that, given that it remains difficult for a lot of the social media networks to, you know, 100% take down all of the kind of white supremacist stuff that ends up on their sites? What, what are we supposed to do about that? You know, anytime you have a tool that allows, uh, makes it easier for people to communicate and spread ideas, you're going to have this problem. And I don't know that we can expect for it 100% elimination of it. You know, and each time it gets removed from a platform, it goes into a, a, a harder and harder recess of the internet uh, for us to to find, to follow, and to uh, monitor and, and research. Mm. I think the time for complacency is over. I don't think people can sit back and, and do nothing. Uh, and it's not going to be solved from in our comfort zone. But we need to re-engage. We need to teach our fellow human being how to treat other human beings by the way we treat other human beings. So we have to set the example. And I think every person through every action of every moment of every day tells the world how people should be treated. And if more of us choose to treat people with humanity and with compassion and dignity and, and holding people accountable at the same time, um, we can create this revolution of compassion that takes away the oxygen for the, uh, the outer extreme poles. That was Tony McClear. With a bit of hope there at the end, Jan, um, that treating people with compassion and dignity will be the answer here. Yeah, I look, it's hard to treat people with compassion and dignity when they're trying to kill you. But I think there is certainly room for compassion and dignity in, in the combat against this, for sure. Yeah, as well as strong surveillance and policing. As well as all of the other things, of course, yeah. Tomorrow on The Briefing, uh, a fantastic interview with Dom Knight from The Chaser. He's written... Uh, a 2020 dictionary, I guess, Jan, with all the most annoying words of 2020. <laughs> this is the only book that you need to read in 2020. That's tomorrow on The Briefing. Thank you for listening. Catch you then. A Podcast One production.